I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. This episode, we're bringing you the audio from an online town hall meeting conducted by parent advocacy group The Parenthood on Tuesday the 26th of May. Lisa was invited to speak on the panel alongside Danielle Wood, an economist from the Grattan Institute, Polly Dunning, a teacher and writer, and Jay Weatherall, the CEO of Thrive by Five. The event was hosted by the Parenthood's campaign director, Georgie Dent, and tackled a variety of important questions, including how families have been affected by the funding changes to the sector, what free ECEC would mean for Australia, how educators and the sector can be better valued, and what we all need to do to work together as advocates during this time. We'd like to thank The Parenthood and Georgie Dent for allowing us to rebroadcast this event. We think it's great advocacy. You can find out more about them at theparenthood.org.au. Hello and welcome to um, the Parenthood's Emergency Town Hall meeting. Um, my name is Georgie Dent and I am the Parenthood's National Campaign Director. I've been on the board for um, a bit over a year and as of um, about nine days ago, I have stepped in to um, run a campaign and um, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. Um, where I am, that is the Camaragal people of the Eora Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So we are here tonight, um, basically to address what is very much becoming a crisis. Um, in early childhood education and care in Australia. Now, even before COVID-19, there were a lot of reasons to say that our system was not working adequately, um, that it was broken and that it was complex and fragmented. But this health pandemic has accelerated um, and exacerbated those problems. Um, and we are here tonight because we really need to start talking about what are our options and what are our solutions because it is very clear that the status quo um, even with the rescue package that is not um, an appropriate or adequate response when we decided on friday that we needed to host um, and pull together some experts but also parents to have this conversation we were already very clear that we were at a crisis point um, I think news today that was announced that um, the University of New South Wales has um, announced that it will close its main centre and it is putting out uh, three, of its, three of its other centres um, out to tender for other operators. This is very clearly um, a threat to early childhood education in Australia, but it's also a threat to the economy because I have already being inundated with messages from people who either families who use those services at UNSW or academics who employ staff who rely on those services. And for those families to lose this vital support is disastrous. Um, it's also disastrous for the educators who will presumably lose their jobs. Um, it's a disaster on all fronts. And um, unfortunately, it just solidifies the reason why it is so important for us to be here to have this conversation. Um, 
if you haven't done uh, an event like this before, uh, we wanted to let you know that it is being recorded um, and that we would encourage you to keep your video on because we think that being able to see um, all of the faces really contributes to the feeling that we are actually part of a bigger group. Um, why it's not yet possible for us to congregate physically together. Um, I think it's really important to recognise how many of us are here together virtually. We would like this um, to be relaxed and to be respectful and inclusive. Um, and our plan is also to make as interactive as possible. Um, if you are on a computer or a laptop, you can set your screen to gallery view by pressing the button at the top. Um, there is also a chat function and we would encourage you to use that um, because I will be moderating the questions that come through and we want to get your questions. Um, the panellists that we have are eager to answer them um, and to hear your ideas as well. Everyone is muted, but if you are going to ask a question, um, the admin will unmute you and you'll be able to ask your question. Um, if you do have any technical difficulties, we have got Ariane who is doing tech support and you can contact her through the um, chat function. So any problems, go to her. She's a wizard. Uh, so that's the technicalities over tonight. I would like to introduce um, the four panellists that I am absolutely delighted to have joining us tonight. We've got Lisa Bryant, who is a particularly prolific uh, commentator and consultant and writer and advocate in the early childhood education space. Welcome, Lisa. Hi. Uh, we have got Polly Dunning, who is a mother of two children um, who are not yet at school. So this is certainly familiar terrain for her. She's also a terrific writer and she is also a teacher. Polly, welcome. Oh, yeah, thank you. We have also got economist um, with the Grattan Institute, Danielle Wood, um, who has done a lot of uh, research and work in this space. Um, and we're very grateful to have her expert opinion tonight and views on the economic ramifications of um, early childhood education failing. And then finally, we have got Jay Weatherill, who is the former South Australian Premier and who is currently the CEO of Five to Thrive, Thrive to Five, um, the Mindaroos Foundation. Um, so welcome, Jay. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Okay, so to kick it off, Polly, I'm going to go to you, and I want to ask, as a from the perspective of a parent who has got children enrolled in um, early childhood education and care, yeah. how do you see this? Um, how do you see the impact of COVID on you and your family and the families who are using your service? Well, for me, um, since it started, I haven't had my children at their service at all. Um, and they're still not there and they're not returning for at least another two weeks. Um, but the things I sort of hear from people I know and um, I've been in pretty much constant contact with the centre um, who have been just so wonderful and so helpful um, and I've had chats with the center director and the thing that is still working and continues to work always pretty much is that they're still delivering really great education and care for all the kids who are there. Um, and friends of mine whose kids are still there are still 
loving it and feeling really well supported. Um, but they are struggling with people leaving and particularly before um, the so-called rescue package came in, they were struggling with a lot of people um, leaving, unable to afford the fees, which are quite high. We live in the, you know, metropolitan Sydney. It's very expensive. Um, and I think a lot of people have been sort of speaking to me about that if, if we go back, if we snap back to full fees, um, like the fees at my centre are well over $150 per child per day, they just can't afford it. So, so I don't know how the centre would cope or survive if they're unable to actually get parents in. And I think um, there was some stats yesterday saying that there's at least a third of parents who would have to either um, remove their children from care or lower the amount of care that they're taking lower the number of days and services will close. And then what do the other two thirds of parents do? Well, then they can't get care for their kids either. And then we can't go to work, et cetera, et cetera. And the roll-on effect is just unbelievable. And worse than we can't go to work actually is our kids really miss out. The kids would miss out. And I, I mean, that's not okay with me. Mm. Um, and I wanted to ask you one of the, sort of curious realities that's happened since this the rescue package came in is that different parents and different centres have been having really different positions. Um, so I would say from the outset that um, family daycare services, for example, have been particularly hard hit because unlike big centres which have seen a fairly substantial reduction in the number of um, children attending, family daycare centres haven't. So they've maintained basically the same numbers while they're, you know, expected to earn less than 50% of what they were making because obviously the government is providing 50% of a capped rate per day per child. And so it means, and often centres and services, particularly in capital cities, do charge considerably more than the cap. So you're looking at a whole lot of services that are, um, you know, really being pushed to the brink and they're expected to do the same work. Um, but then the other thing that we've seen and heard about, and I wanted to ask you about this, Polly, is families being told things like they have to unenrol and then try to resecure their days, or that the centres can't take any um, other children. Uh, have you seen? Have you experienced anything like that at the service where your children are? Well, certainly we've been asked that um, to sort of minimise, we can't have any casual days. So any day that your child's not currently enrolled, you can't get an extra day where you usually may, may. And as someone who works freelance, often I do get an extra day. Um, and so I can understand that lots of people do need that. So uh, only people who are in essential services and even can access more. And that's still 8.30 to 5.30 when usually my centre's from 8 to 6. So they've had to really shorten their hours. And I think parents, I mean, from the people I speak to in the centre, parents seem to be quite understanding that they actually can't afford all their staff and, and they don't want to have to lay people off. They'd rather sort of cut shifts down and they can't afford overtime and all of that sort of thing. Um, and there has been talk about, you know, would we have to start bringing lunches and all that sort of thing, which isn't a problem in these sorts of times, but it just goes to show that they're really struggling. And like the daycare centre that, that, that my kids go to, it's a daycare centre in a preschool next door. So they're kind of the same place. Um, and they're owned by a you know, woman who was a single mum and who started childcare centres and worked in them. And 
it, it's just really heartbreaking, really. Um, Lisa, I'm going to bring you in now and I want to know um, how, how is COVID-19 impacting um, the sector and where do we go from here? It, it's impacting the sector in much the same way as we've just heard. Services um, were at threat of closing, um, some service types more than others. Um, long day cares were especially at risk because so many people couldn't afford it. Family day cares weren't at risk because they still had a lot of people coming in because they're small home-based services. Um, that was what was happening. At the moment, though, you've got a sector under immense pressure, starting off primarily with the educators, because unlike everyone else who's been at home for the past, you know, seven or eight or nine weeks or nine years or however long COVID's gone on for, educators have been fronting up to their service day in, day out, not certain if they were going to take the virus, if they were going to catch the virus while they worked because social distancing is obviously impossible with under five-year-olds and not sure if they're going to take it home to their families or whatever. And they've been working, you know, incredibly hard, the same way as teachers have in doing remote learning for under fives and in, you know, trying to get their heads around like other businesses around JobKeeper and, you know, um, job boosting for employers and all of the other ways that they had to do to get money into survive. So they're left in a situation where a lot of people are desperately unhappy with the package. A lot of people are quite happy with it. They're saying, look, essentially, we're not going to thrive through this, but we can survive. But they're left with uncertainty and uncertainty of the future because the government hasn't yet announced whether we're going to snap back immediately to the old system or whether we're going to something else or what will happen. And I think that there's a real fear that um, if we do snap back to the old system, it had problems, enormous problems to begin with. And in a post-COVID world where there's going to be such less money around in Australia, we're going to be in a recession when there's going to be such high unemployment, services can only function if they have really high occupancy levels above 80% they can survive above 90% they're doing pretty well and if that drops to about 40 or 50% and some services will because they have a lot of families in hospitality for example then those services will close. Mm. Um, Polly um, referenced this early, um, earlier in her comments about the survey um, that showed up to a third of families would have to either reduce the hours that their children are attending care or take them out altogether. Um, those results were actually from a survey that the parenthood that we undertook last week um, and we did it pretty quickly and we were really surprised by how quickly we had in less than 48 hours we had about 1300 families respond um, it's now up to about 2200 responses and the picture is really troubling um, in 44 percent of households um, and pretty much everyone who filled out our survey has children enrolled in some sort of early childhood education um, and care 44 percent of households have lost um, a job or income 
17% of households, both parents, if there are two parents, have lost jobs or income. And then what we saw was that um, 50% of those said that they will have to cut back care um, as a result of that. And so it paints a very clear picture of a crisis because we know that services are functioning right now. Um, it's not sustainable. I mean, it's, you know, it's been a rescue package at the very minimum. It's sort of, it's, it has potentially held off a number of closures, but potentially not long-term. Um, but what we know is that centres are already operating in a really, really low um, capacity. And if we see another significant reduction in numbers, it will have to result in closures. Um, so one of the uncertainties is when the government will make um, a decision on what's coming next. So last weekend, the weekend before last, um, both the Education Minister, Dan Tian and Scott Morrison, indicated that they would be making um, a return to the old system. This was earlier than had originally been flagged um, and they have gone a little bit quiet. But there is a comment here um, from Sean Innes that I wanted to read out and I think that this is not an uncommon situation. He said, I have two kids, four and two, and one of our centres has just sent this email to us today. Dear parents, we have been notified that the childcare relief package will be withdrawn on the 28th of June, 2020. Therefore, our billing schedule will resume to the previous system. Please note, June accounts will be sent out to all families soon and fees will be debited on Monday the 8th of June from the 29th and 30th of June, should these days be your children's normal attendance. He asks the question, does this mean a decision to snap back has already been made? I would say an announcement has not yet been made, but I know um, the service that my four-year-old is at, we got, a, we got an email last week that was not so specific, but it certainly indicated that they were preparing for a return to fees. Jay Weatherill, I'd like to ask you now, do you, what do you think the federal government is thinking in terms of managing childcare from here? Well, um, I think what's on their mind is uh, this dilemma that um, something like 350,000 parents uh, with children in uh, this sector um, have lost their job. And uh, if, it is, if it is the case that we have um, a number of these families not able to, to pay fees, then a number of these centres are going to fall uh, below uh, a critical break-even point. And so you'll see centres close. And if you have centres closing, uh, that will deprive other people of the opportunity to, to send their, their children to those centres, which will have its own effect on whether somebody can take up another shift uh, if they're offered that, because there may not be the, the service available where they need it. So, so this is a massive dilemma uh, for the government. And I, I think, so I'd, I'd be surprised if they've made a decision uh, now. I, I could be wrong about that. But I think, they'd be, I think they would be weighing what really is um, a difficulty if they, if they snap back to the old arrangements, but also a, a difficulty if they continue the existing arrangements, because there are uh, obviously manifest problems with the current scheme. 
So my guess, without knowing anything uh, about this, I'm not privy to any discussions, but my guess is that they're going to craft a further temporary arrangement to get them through to, to the budget. But that's just my best guess. And But I, I think... I think there's another way of looking at this. I mean, let's let's for a moment, I know there are lots of problems with what's being crafted, but let's for a moment just look at uh, some of the um, the positive elements of this. The first is that we've, it's the first time we've really seen childcare put in the category of an essential service. It's the first time uh, that we've seen free, although it's not free, of course, for many people, but nevertheless, that the principle of free childcare has been established for the first time. So if we think about what the system that we really want to have, the ultimate system, it seems to me that universal early learning for every child that, that wants it and needs it uh, should be our goal. And so I think, um, I think we should acknowledge uh, some of the, the strengths of what have, have happened. Of course, it's inadequate, but I think it's always a good idea to, before you start, criticising governments, it's a good idea to express, if you can, some degree of gratitude um, for the steps that they've taken in the right direction. What we want them to do is to build on those steps. So why would they go back to something that's bad for kids, bad for parents, bad for the economy, and of course, bad for those childcare centres? And, and of course, you know, the, the, a lot of jobs will be lost if those centres go under as well at a very time when we... So it, it's, it's hard it's hard to see why there's any good will come out of going backwards. There's, you know, what we really want them to do is to go forwards, to build on the, the, the good elements of what they've created. And I, I think that's a much more productive discussion to have with the Commonwealth Government, try and at least um, uh, get them to, to actually not, not sort of look backwards, but actually look forwards. Mm. And I think, you, you know, you, you are absolutely right. And I mean, on the on the day, on the 2nd of April, when um, Scott Morrison and Dan Tian announced this package, some of the language and comments were quite extraordinary um, to take on, just because we have not heard senior levels of government talk about how vital this service is. And speaking about the fact that it is absolutely unacceptable for families to be, to be having to choose between whether they can afford to go to work or whether they can afford to put their child into care. Um, and I think that this is an opportunity that we have to capitalise on. I really do believe firmly that um, we cannot afford to lose here. This is too important for us to fail because we will be setting up our economy, we will be setting up children, we will be setting up educators to, for failure. And we simply can't do that. Danielle, I wanted to bring you in now. Can you talk us through the picture? You know, what, what role can you see ideally early childhood education and care playing in our economy um, and sort of creating a positive impact to our, to our economy? Oh, well, I mean, it obviously plays an incredibly important role and I would echo that view about the kind of the change in the way it's being talked about in the public debate. Um, I also know another shift occurred today when um, the Prime Minister stood up at the press club and he talked about the importance of female workforce participation and what an important driver that has been um, in the Australian economy in recent decades. And to me, that was like amazing. I mean, this has been the major economic transformation of the past 40 years, social and economic. Uh, we now have three quarters of adult women in the workforce 
in some form or another 30 years ago, that was less than 50%. So that is a very significant change. Uh, what we know is under the pre-COVID childcare subsidy system, um, there were some pretty strong deterrents for second earners who are still mainly women um, from taking on more childcare days, um, particularly once you go beyond three days a week. And it doesn't really matter where you are in the income distribution, if you're a low earner, a middle income earner, even some high income earners, the way in which those out-of-pocket childcare costs interact with tax systems, interact with the clawback of welfare benefits, meant that for a lot of women, particularly that fourth and fifth day of work, um, they were earning virtually nothing, sometimes working for free, sometimes actually losing money from working that additional day. That is absolutely crazy. Um, it, it makes no sense. We are actively disincentivizing people from making a choice that they may want to make. Um, and, you know, we have some of the highest rates of part-time work amongst women in the developed world. And, you know, people will say, well, that's choice, but you look at the system and clearly it's funneling them to a particular decision. Um, so what we know is that making childcare more affordable, dealing with some of those disincentive effects um, can give you a really big economic kicker because it frees up second earners, um, particularly women to make the choice that they want to make. And often that choice will be to work more, to take up more care, to go into the workforce with all the benefits that we know come with that. Um, so certainly our numbers suggest that, you know, you do get some pretty sizable GDP benefits from investment into early childhood education and care. Mm. It's, it's interesting, one of the, um, in the survey that we ran of parents, um, there were a couple of sections where we, we offered um, an opportunity to write any comments um, that they wanted. And one of the messages that we heard time and time again was that having this relief from fees for a period of time has enabled them as a family to actually hold their ground for a little bit and to actually feel like they're able to, you know, potentially save a little bit more. Um, and I think it is worth noting that in global terms, um, what parents pay for childcare is really expensive in Australia. But I think the other message that came through, and this was from, you know, a lot of parents made this comment that they do not feel comfortable, even when they have lost their job and they're in a financially stretched position, parents are not comfortable with educators not being paid adequately. Um, and I mean, that is an issue. It's a huge issue. Um, it's always been an issue, but I think particularly at the moment, because what we know is happening under this, the interim rescue arrangement is that a lot of people who are already not earning a lot of money, who are doing a really valuable, important, critical job that is not without risk, are having their hours cut and they're having their own financial position stretched. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's something that we really have to fundamentally change and I, I think that if we are getting if we can achieve anything like universal access one of the fundamental changes that needs to happen is that the workforce is paid professionally you know that they are paid appropriately um lisa what do you what where are you thinking in terms of um the wages and the valuing of early childhood education what are the where can we move there I think one of the most important things we've got to do is um, make sure that everyone understands that we don't have these two separate things, one called childcare and one called early education. Every child learns from birth. Every parent, I can see Polly nodding there, because every parent knows that 
in those first years of their child's life, they learn to walk, they learn to talk, they learn to communicate, they learn to self-soothe, they learn to express emotions, they learn to deal with emotions. All of that happens before we start formal education. And we know that children learn the most through play. And if, that's, if that play is being done by a parent, then great. You know, they can, if, if the parent can interact with the child, then that's really good. If the parent has to go and work, we need to make sure someone's doing that really important brain building work. Because if it's not happening in those first five years, then we see the impacts on it later in, in their education. So it's really important that we stop thinking of it as childcare or early education. It's, you know, a child that goes to any service in Australia at the moment gets an early education, even if though it might be called a childcare service. So we really need to cut that dichotomy. The next thing we need to do is to stop building a system built on the backs of early educators earning inadequate wages. It's not an accidental side effect that that's how it happened. The very system is built on, on having low paid workers doing the work so that higher paid workers can go off to their jobs and get, um, and get pay. We also need to just build a system that isn't as expensive or as complicated for parents. As much as it's very, really expensive, it's also really complicated. You know when your child goes five, turns five that they're going to that school up the road or maybe you've got a choice of schools, etc. But you understand the concept of schools. You have a baby and suddenly you have to learn about family daycare or preschool or long daycare and community-based or for-profit, etc. That's all really hard for parents. You know, it's a complex system. And it's seen, childcare is seen as a reward for working by the government. And this is one of the things that I think is really going to be a problem in coming months is that a lot of parents don't understand that the amount of subsidised care that they get under the current system is based on the number of hours that they work. So that in a two-parent family, if one couple, if one partner in that family only works one day a week, then that child is only eligible for one day subsidised care, more or less. Um, yeah, the figures aren't exact there. And so what we're going to see is a lot of people will suddenly find that even if they want to put their child in two or three days a week and they can somehow afford that, they won't be eligible for subsidised care. So they'll be paying full costs. Um, and it's also expensive for parents because of the way it's funded. It's funded by giving parents a subsidy rather than by funding the services themselves. Currently, we're funding the services themselves and everyone knows it's not a perfect system because it's not, they're not being funded adequately enough. But it seems to me it's a lot more simpler to go, okay, we're going to fund the 15,000 services across Australia rather than we're going to fund the million parents across Australia. Someone said, you know, one of the really um, good things that could happen out of this is that parents don't have to deal with Centrelink in order to get their child, 
into early education. How many hours have you, Georgie, or you, Polly, or Daniel, I don't know if you have children, but how many hours have you spent on the phone to Centrelink just trying to get your child, you know, into early education and care? Imagine if we could do away with that. Yeah. I mean, look, I can say hand on heart, getting a CRN number for my first child was one of the most traumatic experiences <laughs> of um, becoming a parent. And her labour was 38 hours. So, I mean, there was quite a lot of trauma involved and Centrelink was almost worse. Um, I know Eva Cox had a question, potentially also a comment. Hi, nice to see you all. This is a subject I've been talking about for a very long time. And one of the things I want to mention, we've nearly got there in a couple of the comments, that once upon a time, it wasn't so bloody long ago, it was just that end of the last century. I was one of the people that set up the original childcare scheme under the ALP, where we actually had not-for-profit services that were being paid directly and controlled by the government because they were given, they had to actually agree to a certain fee, they had to be in an area where they were needed, they had to offer the age groups that were actually needed by people in those areas. They had to open for the hours that were did it. And then they actually got a subsidy. And on top of that, parents got a uh, fee relief subsidy. And because of neoliberalism and various other views, they decided to put it onto the market. So at the beginning of this century, they put it onto the market. And now it's been completely stuffed up because, I don't know, nobody's mentioned it. I'd be really interested what the difference is when you've got one of the big chains that you're taking your kid to versus a local community or even a local privately run preschool. I think there's a childcare centre. I think there'd be a big difference. So I think we need to get back to the idea that children's services needs to be a universally paid service, similar to what Jay was talking about, maybe introducing it as part of the education system. It might take us a bit longer, but we could start by the idea that everything should be directly subsidised by the Commonwealth Government and only those services that agree to reasonable fees should be allowed to sort of to, to get the subsidies and they should be in areas where there's children because it's one of the very few areas which breaks all the rules of economics because actually an excess supply doesn't create lower fees because everybody's locked into a contract with the owner of the centre. So they've got to keep the fees up. So the number, the number of people attending goes down, fees go up. Never mind that there's a free place next door, but you don't want to move your kid because they've actually got friends and they like the teacher. Mm -hmm. It's not like sort of, you know, dry cleaners that you're dropping your kids off at. So I think we've got to get back to the idea that these are services that should fit into the community and be planned to fit into the community. And if they are for profit, okay, they can get a return on capital, but they can't charge like wounded bull and bulls and pretend they're offering French lessons and linen or whatever it is, sheets and various other things I've seen advertised. I think we've got to get back to the fact that kids need childcare because they, children's services because they need to go to them. Women need to get away from their children. Children need to get away from their mothers. And yes, it's very good that we can actually therefore also do paid work but it should never be an economic service. And I apologise for the fact I remember making that case in the 1980s. Maybe I shouldn't have. But I think we've got to stop and start getting back to the fact that we've got lots of evidence that children benefit from childcare and it should not be dependent on the number of hours that the parent works. And it should not be dependent on the ability to afford fees. And if we all got together and said to the government, okay, the first thing we want you to do is take back control over the fees, over the centres and over where they are, which is not going to cost you a lot of money, in fact. 
then we can start looking at putting in place all the other reforms that we want. And I think you know, we'd have a lot more ability to do so if we actually had a proper system and could tie it back also with early childhood, with preschools in New South Wales, by then to deal with the governments as well. Sorry to be so long-winded, but that was 30 odd years of 50 odd years of being involved because I was a single parent and I started the first after-school centre ever in Paddington and was very active because I felt guilty about wheedling my child into a, pre into a childcare centre when there were no spaces around. So I'm still being guilty about it. Well, please don't feel guilty and please don't apologise for um, making those contributions. We really appreciate you um, having you here. Jay, can I go to you to reflect on, on those comments from Eva but, and also to potentially answer a question um, that we've had from uh, Julie Gelman to talk through when policy is made and if and how women's voices and women's experiences um, feed into that process. Well, first thing to say is I agree with every word that Eva just said, um, but uh, how they may, well, look, most politicians are, are not leaders, they're followers. So this group that, that's been assembled today uh, on this call is a very important group. A, a lot of us have been banging on about this for a long time. I tried to raise these things at COAG, but it's not enough just to have a good idea and, and to promote it. Um, you need to actually create pressure for change. Um, pressure for change really comes from a community-led movement of, of parents and educators like the people that are on this, on this call. And they have to come together and arrive at, um, they have to campaign, uh, they have to have a campaign goal, and they have to prosecute it. And they have to prosecute it such that it becomes, there is a political price to be paid for not essentially agreeing with the proposition that's being put. So, you know, I believe, but, you know, it, it's really a, con it needs to be a consensus decision that we need to have a really clear campaign goal. And I think a good model is the National Disability Insurance Scheme uh, model. I was, I used to be Minister for Disability back in 2004. If you'd told me back then that we'd end up with a national disability insurance scheme that doubled the amount of funding to disability services, I would have laughed because usually it was a portfolio you gave to the lowliest minister and they, typically you were, you couldn't get any money out of the, the treasurer because it just it was a, a portfolio that didn't have any grip. But a group of disability organisations came together, they campaigned, um, a disparate group of people managed to settle on one single ask, that was a national disability insurance scheme. And they campaigned under the banner of um, Every Australian Counts. And they ran a campaign. It took five years, but, but they, they got there. And right, there are a lot of problems still with the NDIS that need to be fixed up. But it's undeniable that they, they've created another plank, in it, if you like, in the social insurance project. Medicare, now NDIS, sits there. And it will never be removed because they won bipartisan support. That's the type of thing that, that needs to occur if you're going to be at change in this era. And I think the campaign goal has to be universal early learning for every child. And I think it's incredibly powerful. It's popular, we know, because we've tested it. Um, it's, I think it's tapped into a really important issue, which is uh, essentially this um, discrimination against women in the workplace, which I think, uh, in a funny way, you know, I think um, this, this COVID crisis has really revealed 
a bit of a smouldering discontent amongst a whole lot of women in particular, but, but some men, but women who have been done over basically because they've had to juggle work and, and family and uh, they've been overlooked for promotions. They've been dudded for a whole range of, of opportunities that might otherwise existed if we had a proper uh, system in place. So I, I just I got a, I just got a feeling that, that this is an issue whose time has come. And I think we, if we if we were disciplined and we we came up with a single message and we campaigned strongly on it, I, I'm sure we could move mountains. Hmm. Danielle, how would you prosecute an economic case for 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 making this sort of investment and policy change? Uh, look, so I think the economic case. Um, you can run a short-term one and a long-term one. Um, so the short-term one is along the lines that I was talking before. By making childcare more affordable, you free up options um, for women in particular to be able to take on more days of work. Um, so then I think there's also a long-term economic case, which is um, more the piece around childhood education. Um, so you know, very clear result in a lot of the international literature that giving children education in the early years is incredibly important for their development. It's particularly for people, children from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, and then you're talking, there's a really, there's a long-term economic story there. Um, this is gonna make them um, better educated, better able to participate in the workforce in the future, um, less of the sort of negative side effects we know when people miss out on crucial learning in those early years. Um, so I think, you know, that's a really nice way to run it with both the, the short-term payoffs and the long-term payoffs as part of the case. Mm. And, I mean, there, there is an interesting um, comment that someone has made here, and it's basically that, you know, we need to convince the government of the economic case and we need to convince the community of the educational, um, you know, aspect to it. And I think... You know, I think there is a real misunderstanding in this country about the value of the early education experience. You know, there's a lot of, there is a lot of sentiment, I think, still that looking after children is just babysitting and that you're sort of wiping noses and, and that that's it, when actually, in fact, all of the cognitive and social and developmental skills that children get in those formative years help them arrive at school in a position where they're ready to start learning to read and to write and, and sort of the more formal education piece begins. And I think there is an opportunity to, to run a campaign where you do make that really very explicit. Um, Polly, I'll bring you in there. As someone who is, you are an educator yourself, you are a high school teacher, how do yep. you feel about the sort of value piece um, and in terms of the work that um, educators do? Well, there's a few things. The first is that we know that 80% of um, a child's brain development happens by the time they're three, 90% by the time they're five. So by the time they go to school, it's already 90% done. And I actually often think it's quite somewhat arrogant to think that lay people, and I count myself as one of them, I don't have an early childhood degree, would be able to do early education and school readiness as well as someone who has studied it for four years at university. That's just arrogant. I don't, I wasn't born, I didn't get a chip when I gave birth that told me how to do this. And I think a lot of parents having their kids, particularly preschool and that early primary home for this time at the moment has really brought that home that you go, 
I don't know how to do this. Like, I don't know how to do all these programs and teach this stuff. I can't do it. So I think that people, this has already been an opportunity to go, you know how you think it's easy? You know how you think it's babysitting? Well, it's really not. And when you are, when your goal is to educate, it's very challenging and it does require a lot of professionalism and skill. And the fact that we ever thought it didn't just goes to show that once again, we're diminishing and devaluing the work that women have always done. But I think the other thing is that, you know, a couple of hundred years ago when we decided to uh, offer free universal education in public schools, in, in um, primary and secondary schools, that was outrageous, crazy. That was never going to happen. Why would that ever happen? Well, there's no reason why it can't happen now. It happened then. And I think investment-wise, as Danielle was saying, the investment is something like for every dollar you invest in early childhood education, you get $2 back on that, on that child later. That sounds great. The other thing is we already spend one of the highest spends in the OECD already on our early childhood sector. And what we get is a really crappy system that doesn't work very well for anybody. Why don't we invest a little bit more and get a great system? And I'll tell you where we can get the money. We can get the money from the extra money that we get in our GDP from the women who can now go to work. So in fact, it's not going to cost us anything. It's only going to benefit us. It's going to benefit our kids. It's going to benefit our GDP, our parents. It benefits the whole community. Mm. Yes. Um, I, I agree, absolutely. And there's a, there's a, um, a, a comment here, a question from Shelley that is very apt because it was basically what I was going to come to next, but she said she doesn't feel like we're getting to the how. And we are absolutely at a point in time where the how is what really matters because we are at... Um, we sort of are on the edge of a point here where um, the decision we make is going to have uh, ramifications for all of us. And so I guess the question there is, what are we prepared to do to make this change? Uh, what can we do um, to make this change? I think that being in a crisis is not necessarily a bad thing. I think as Jay, um, you know, made that point that the fact that we are at point where even fee-free childcare, even with its, all of its flaws, has been provided is a phenomenal change from where we were um, in February, for example. Um, and I think we do have to scrutinise how we can capitalise on this moment um, to prosecute the... I think that, as Jay said, there are lots of people on this call that have been working in this space trying to champion these causes and doing incredible work in all, you know, in different ways for a long time. And I guess the question is, how do we go from here? Um, the parenthood, we have, um, we started a petition when we launched this campaign um, last Monday, which feels like about three months ago, but it was actually only eight days ago. Um, and we are trying to get as many parents as possible to add their name to that petition to basically say to the government, let's have a serious conversation about reforming um, early education and care. We cannot go back to the old system. The rescue package isn't working. Um, so I would say that that is one way, you know, it's, it's only small, but adding your name to that petition, sending it to as many friends who care about this issue as possible um, is an important start. I think it's also really important to engage in the work that organisations are doing. Um, and Jay, I wondered whether you would talk a little bit um, about Thrive, to Thrive by Five. Um, sort of give people a sense of what we can work towards and how we might work towards that. 
Yeah, well, I mean, as it as it happened uh, three months ago, before all this, we were um, thinking about this very thing. How do we construct a political campaign that puts pressure on the political process to put essentially early childhood on the political agenda? What we didn't reckon on was that um, COVID would put early childhood on the political agenda. Now, uh, it's only put one element, if you like, of early childhood on the political agenda, the, the so-called childcare element. I mean, in a way, there are, there are actually five service systems involved in early childhood. There's um, childcare, which we've been discussing, early learning, which we typically call preschool, um, child protection, uh, infant and maternal health, and then, of course, all the community and family services. Now, all of those service systems uh, uh, are in this area and, and they don't, they're not very well integrated and, and um, that there's a lot, there's a lot of quite complex public policy work to knit those systems together. And so we were busily thinking about how we might do that. Um, but it seems to me that th this uh, opportunity has arisen. And I mean, the first element of our campaign was going to be to put early childhood on the agenda. And in a way, it's, that's been accelerated. So, look, we're just there as a foundation to really support uh, all of your efforts uh, to, to actually get the systems changed that we all know and, and want to, to um, advance. So we're very much um, a facilitating organisation. We, uh, obviously, there are lots of people around here that understand what a good system looks like and would, would be able to help with the design of that system. We just want to... Uh, lend our support behind groups like the Parenthood and uh, other important groups that have been working on this uh, agenda for a long time to try and put this on the political agenda. So I think, um, you know, we're, uh, we want to work with everyone here to actually make that a reality. I think um, there's, a, there's a comment here from um, Eugene McGarrell, and she says, this government is not going to change the current system. There needs to be a public movement to inform and advocate. I just can't see them listening. And I think that, you know, that creating that movement um, of, of parents and educators and anyone who is genuinely invested in the issue of um, early childhood education in Australia um, is a really important starting block. And I don't think we can discount what is possible when people come together. Um, and I think that, you know, in it, um, one of the other board members on the Parenthood made the point recently um, when we were discussing and he said, you know, imagine before Medicare was introduced, imagine anyone thinking that that would get up, you know, that we would have this universal healthcare system that was publicly funded. And, you know, I mean, I know it's not perfect, but it is a pretty phenomenal model. Um, and, you know, Australia before Medicare, it would have seemed laughable that something like that can be achieved. And I think it is actually really powerful to remember that, that these sorts of changes are possible if enough people sort of come together and they seize the moment where you can have that conversation. And we do have, at this point, early childhood education on the agenda in a way it has not been before. Lisa, tell me, what would you say to people who want to be part of a movement um, to change? What do you think is the most valuable thing we can be doing with our time right now? I actually don't know that one because I feel like I've been campaigning for this for so long that I've lost track of how we could win it. But I think Jay's right. It's got to be public pressure. It's got to be parents out there 
um, while the government can discount the interests of services, which they see as businesses, um, they can discount uh, you know, the words of unions and educators because they see them as unions and educators just after their own interests. It's very hard to, for them to discount the needs and the words of parents so that the more parents that are actually backing up the call for, you know, funded early education and care, the better. And, you know, like uh, one of my friends said, you know, about seven weeks ago, he said this is the first day that every child who has entered an early education centre today is doing that for free. And we didn't think, you know, like... It was only a few years ago that the government bought in this new system and all of us that had been campaigning around that went, oh, my God, this is terrible. It's a, a very bad system. And so suddenly we've already moved from that. We've got an opportunity here. If we could just make that opportunity so that parents are saying, no, we want our children to get the best possible education that they can get. And we understand that that happens from birth, you know, then that would be, you know, like uh, that would be really important. The other thing I think that we can use as an economic lever on the government is the actual cost at a time when they're saying we're going to have to tighten our belts. They're spending $8 billion a year on early education. And a lot of that money goes straight into the hands of landlords who are making money out of, you know, the premises from which early education is offered. I remember when Polly had first took her child to childcare, she contacted me and said, who's making the money in early education? Why does it cost so much? And I said, well, it's, it's landlords, it's businesses. Um, we allow early education and care to be run for profit. Now, a lot of people get really upset when I say that because they say, oh, I'm, I've been running this childcare centre for 40 years and I'm a small mother and father operation. And a lot of services are like that. But we also have big corporations that are running early education and care centres and we've got big overseas multinational equity firms who invest in Australian childcare services because they think it's a great lark to have government-funded cash flow. So if we could use that $8 billion, or if we could show the government that they could save on that $8 billion by investing it more sensibly than what they are doing now, then that would be, you know, like an absolute wonderful outcome. And if you look at it now, we're all going, okay, they've just saved $60 billion mm -hmm. um, job capital. And we get all the early education we need for $8 billion. Is there a way that maybe we could have just a little bit of that JobKeeper money and then we could truly put into place something? Um, and just very quickly, some statistics. When a child goes to early education, they're half as likely to be developmentally vulnerable when they start school. Half as likely. That's according to the Australian Early Development Census. When they do their PISA exams at 15, if they haven't gone to early education for two years, they're twice as likely to get poor results. In the old NAPLAN days, thank God they're gone, but just, you know, a few statistics about NAPLAN. Children who had early education 
in, we were 12 points higher on reading, 17 points higher on numeracy and 15 points higher on spelling. If that isn't a good investment for our country right now, mm. then God knows what is. I know. And, I mean, you, put into, you, you take into account the research that PwC and the Front Project put out last year that for every dollar invested in early education and care, you get a $2 uh, return. So I just keep thinking that $60 billion accounting error, that's $120 billion we could be making. <laughs> and I'm in for that. Now, we are a few moments from wrapping up, and I just want to say there is one comment that has come up a lot, and I think it's really important, and it is the, the discussion around the power of um, unions in terms of advocating um, for educators and for those rights, and I think that collective movement um, cannot be discounted. A number of people have also made the point that educators and parents combining makes an incredibly powerful force. And I think that, I think you would be hard pressed to find many parents who had really different objectives in mind other than educators being paid adequately and, and giving their children the best opportunity to be educated. And that involves um, professionally paying the workforce that delivers that service. Can I just briefly go around, and Jay, I'm gonna to throw to you first. One idea on where to go next, what should we be doing right now? Uh, all uh, offering your names or agreeing to have your names put forward to uh, the parenthood so that we can all find ways in which we can engage you in a campaign and then try and build this out, um, try and find three or four other people to, to join this campaign because that's how it will be won. It will be through pressure applied to the political process. Terrific. Um, Danielle, what do you think? What can we do immediately? Uh, look, I agree with what Jay said, and I think that the one line that really got me from earlier in the, the talk was, imagine a world where you don't have to go through Centrelink to get your childcare. I think if you said that to any parent at the door of the childcare centre, you would get their signature then and there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, jokes aside, Centrelink is already at capacity because of this crisis. Indeed. And if we don't make a significant change. If we were to snap back to the old model right now, that would put unbelievable pressure onto Centrelink because of the changed employment um, that people have. And it just, it's not um, viable to, to assume that the, that the system could withstand it. And I think that's actually a really valid reason that potentially the government may avoid snapping back too quickly because that just would be a disaster. Um, Polly, what do you think? What can we do? What should we do? Well, I agree with what Jay and Danielle have said, um, but I also think just good old fashioned harass the hell out of your local member. Ring them on the phone repeatedly, email over and over again, make yourself an absolute nuisance because if enough people in your area do it and get your mates on board, get everybody on board and doing it because they work for you and if enough people annoy the crap out of them, they'll probably do something about it. Yeah, here's hoping. And I do think, you know, we do have more um, power than we sometimes realise, particularly if we do band together. And I mean, if you think about your own individual network, whether it's the people that you work with, the families that you socialise with, you know, we're all pretty connected, even if it's in a very different sort of more virtual sense now than it was a few months ago. Um, and I think that having these sorts of conversations is really important because there are a lot of people who don't, um, understand the, the flaws in, in the model, the old model, the rescue package. They don't understand the, the tangible, quantifiable benefits of making this sort of investment. 
Um, and I think spreading the word um, around there is incredibly important. And Lisa, that's something you obviously do very, very well um, in your advocacy work. What's your last tip for everybody? And you don't have to say join the parenthood petition, but obviously <laughs> you should absolutely join the parenthood petition. Of and make other people <laughs> Look, I think the most important thing that we have to do is fight and explain to everyone and get everyone on board with the concept that early childhood education should be everyone's, every child's right, every Australian child's right. Just as we have the right of every dis disabled person in Australia to have an insurance scheme that looks after their needs, every child deserves the best early education, the best start to life our country can give them. And if you can persuade, if you believe in that, and you can persuade another 10 people, then that's how we start a movement. It absolutely is. Um, so we've now, we've clocked over past 8.30. So I'm going to say um, thank you so much to um, our panellists, to Danielle and Polly and Jay and Lisa. Thank you for your time and for your passion and advocacy around um, this subject. And thank you to everybody who's taken the time to um, log on tonight. We are really hopeful that this is an area that we can create some positive change. Um, and I am really hopeful the fact that there are so many of you on board here tonight. Um, and certainly thanks to you, Georgie, too, for your tireless advocacy and for organising tonight and all the work that you do. So thank you. Thank you. That is very kind. Look, it's been a busy... It's been a long time, but you know what? My eldest child turned 10 today and I've just been reflecting on the fact that when she started in childcare in, um, for the very first time, I was just blown away by how um, amazing the service was and the, the, the education, the benefits that she was getting, but the cost and the difficulty, you know, we, she was a little CBD baby, even though my husband and I didn't work in the city and we would get the bus in to take her because it was the only place we could get her and it was $165 a day and it was amazing, but it was basically, you know, 50% of our income. Um, and I reflect on the fact that ever since then, I have thought that this is something that we could do better on. Um, and I really am hopeful that maybe at this point we can start moving towards a better system really Thank you everybody for joining us. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jarzar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.